We have a great psalm tonight. I've been looking forward to this one for many weeks, Psalm 49, and I've called this the worthlessness of wealth. You know, the Bible, this psalm may have been written 3,000 years ago, maybe 2,500 years ago. We don't know the exact time, but everything it teaches was relevant then, was relevant in Jesus' days, and it's relevant today. Wealth, the greed, everything it says is, is relevant, sufficient for today. So if you'd open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 49, we will read it and pray and then get into it. Psalm 49, a psalm of the songs of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their forms shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like beasts that perish. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight as we study Psalms 49 that you would teach us about wealth, about riches, and what the psalmist was trying to convey the meaning through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we leave here today knowing more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was watching the business news last week, and it said that credit card debt is at an all-time high in the history of the United States. And they explained why. They said because during the lockout, our government was printing lots of money and sending us lots of checks. So a lot of people got accustomed to living off the stimulus checks, and then all of a sudden they stopped coming. And so a lot of people did not adjust their outgoing with their incoming, and they put it on credit cards. So that reminded me, there was a saying that says, nowadays people can be divided into three classes of people. The haves... The have-nots, and the have-not-paid-for-what-they-haves. I hope you're not in that last category. If so, you better listen really carefully tonight to this psalm. The type of psalm tonight is a wisdom psalm. There's nothing quite like it in the book of Psalms. When you start from Psalms 1 and you go up to this Psalm 48, Psalm 49, there's no psalm about wealth and riches. And there, I think the word riches and wealth are five times in this psalm's. It's a, it's a wisdom psalm about the emptiness of riches 
It's a call not to put your trust in worthless things like riches, but to put your trust in the living God who gives eternal life. Other authors called it the high cost of redemption. One author called it you can't take it with you. Another called it death and life's meaning. Another called it the poverty of prosperity. And another author called it the folly of trusting in wealth. Uh, It's written by the sons of Korah. We don't know exactly who. The sons of Korah wrote 10 psalms of the 150. Psalm 42, you know, that as the deer pants, that wonderful psalm. Then they wrote Psalm 44 to 49. They wrote Psalm 84, which we looked at last year. Psalm 85 and 87. They wrote 10 psalms, or one of the sons of Korah wrote these psalms. So the heading says, To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. We know the sons of Korah were descendants of Koloth, the tribe of Levi. They were priests. And they were responsible for the tabernacle and the temple. And their primary responsibility was the performance of music. So we have three points to tonight's outline. Words of wisdom, verses 1 to 4. Words of wisdom on wealth, verses 1 to 4. Words of wisdom about the wealthy, verses 5 to 15. And then point three, words of wisdom on the worthlessness of wealth, verses 16 to 20. This psalm, we don't know the exact date I mentioned, but it's probably written upwards of 3,000 years ago. And you know that Job, which we're going to look at in about five weeks, Pastor Lance will be teaching on Job soon. Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, as well as Psalms and the Song of Solomon, are called the wisdom literature of the Bible. They're, they're written through the power of the Holy Spirit. They're God's advice on how to live life wisely. And this is a very unique psalm because it's almost like the book of Proverbs. It begins the first four verses like the book of Proverbs. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 49.3 says, My mouth will speak wisdom. Match that with Proverbs 10.31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Psalm 49.4 says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. Proverbs 1.6 says, To understand a proverb and a saying. Psalm 49.10 says, Even wise men die. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 16 says, How the wise dies just like the fool. And Psalm 49.10 also says, Fools leave their wealth to others. And Ecclesiastes 2 verse 18 says, I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And Psalms 49 Verses 12 and 20 both say, like beasts that perish. And that's what it says in Ecclesiastes 3.19. It says, for what happens to the children of man happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other. Psalms 49.14 says, the upright shall rule over them. Proverbs 12.24 says, the hand of the diligent will rule. And lastly, Psalms 49.17 says, when he dies, he will carry away nothing. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing. For in his toil that he may carry away in his hands. So verses 1 to 4 are words of wisdom. They're a a call. uh, They're an imperative. And first off, he calls to all peoples. He's going to list four groups of peoples. He's going to list the low and the high and the rich and the poor. And he says, hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high. The New Living Translation says, listen to this, all you peoples, 
pay attention to everyone in the world. The opening verse here is a call, is a listen to imperative to gain our intention. When you see that word world there, there are about seven different words for world. And this one means the temporary time of, of world, the temporary world of time. People exist in a temporary world. It has a worldwide application, he says, to all peoples, to all inhabitants. And yes, that speaks to Christians as well as non-Christians, because Christians need to know about money and riches and wealth, too. He then says, to the rich and to the poor. This is a, a use of Miriam, where he's referring to all people by two extremes of category. This is an economic class, from the poor to the rich. So he calls four different types of people, everyone in the world, to listen very carefully. And then he cries out with prudence. He's now going to use four different words to describe the psalm. He's going to say in verse 3, my mouth shall dispense wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm. The, the word wisdom refers to discipline and meaningful way of life that pleases the Father in heaven and provides successful and lasting time in the community. So number one, he says wisdom. Number two, he says he's going to give understanding. He says that the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. The LSB translation says discernment. Understanding and discernment are the same. Interesting that verse 3 says, the righteous can have understanding, yet verse 20 says, the ungodly do not have understanding. And the Bible tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14 that the natural man, the ungodly man or the wicked man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. For he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Thirdly, he says he's going to speak in Proverbs. He says, I will incline, in verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. And there's lots of proverbs in this psalm. Like number, verse, verse 12 says, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like beasts that perish. That's just a simple proverb. And we have lots of them here, and I, I read some of them earlier. And fourthly, he says, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. What does he mean by riddles? Well, riddles are a type of word puzzle in ancient times. They were used for entertainment. They were used to test wisdom. Riddles allowed the speaker to obscure valuable information from the undeserving while simultaneously disclosing a vital truth to worthy listeners. Probably the best-known riddle in the Bible is the one Samson gave. Remember at the wedding feast? The 30 guests came, and Samson said, I'm going to give you a riddle, and the wedding feast was seven days. Samson said, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something to sweet. And the 30 guests could not solve the riddle, so they threatened Samson's wife, and she, she got it from him, and the answer to the riddle was, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? The same word used for Samson's riddle in Hebrew is translated as hard questions when the Queen of Sheba came to ask hard questions or riddles to King Solomon. It says, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions or riddles. So Solomon was someone who could solve riddles, and obviously he was the wisest man who ever lived. Then we just finished our study in the book of Daniel, and you may remember in Daniel 5, uh, King Belteshazzar sees the hand of God writing on the wall, and he kind of freaks out, and he's scared, and none of the magicians, none of the enchanters could read what, what God wrote on the wall. But the queen came in, and the queen says, hey, 
there's a man here named Daniel, and he's a skillful interpreter of riddles. One of the many things she said about him in Daniel 5, verses 11 and 12. And Jesus even used riddles. Remember when he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? So riddles were very popular then. A couple riddles in Psalm 49 here. What can man give in exchange for his soul? And verses 6 to 9 will explain that. Nothing. Man cannot give anything for his soul. Another riddle would be, what is the great equalizer between the rich and the poor? And the answer to that one's in verse 10. Death. Let's move on from the introduction, verses 1 to 4, to the, to the meat of the, the psalm. Words of wisdom about the wealthy. Okay, And I've broken it down into seven points, subpoints there. Number one, what the wealthy cannot do. What can the wealthy cannot do? They cannot make us, or they cannot make the godly fear, okay? They should not make us fear. This is a a common theme in Psalms. You've probably heard me talk about it several times in the last few weeks. Why should we fear the ungodly? Why should we fear in times of trouble, it says, when the iniquity of those who cheat surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth, and boast in the abundance of the riches. The ESV, which I'm using, says times of trouble, The NIV says evil days. The NASB says days of adversity. And I mentioned we have wealth and riches five times. Wealth here refers more more than wealth. It includes power and status as well as that person's possessions. It's a fundamental question in the psalm. Why should I let the apparent prosperity of the wicked bother me? We spent a lot of time on Psalm 73 last year. So this psalmist, this sons of Korah, He sees wealthy landowners, probably, taking advantage of the poor Jewish people. But for the ungodly, too often, wealth is not enough. It's never enough, is it? They will use power to gain more wealth and oppress and take advantage of the less fortunate people. There's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy that says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, your neighbor's stone mark, property line, which the men of old have set. It says the same thing in Deuteronomy 27, 17. It says, Cursed be anybody who moves his neighbor's landmark. Proverbs 22, 28 says, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. It says the same thing in Proverbs 23. Job 24, 2 says it. Hosea 5, 10 says it. Why are there so many verses, at least six verses, about people moving the boundary line of people's property? Because it was a real big problem in Israel and the Jewish culture. Rich landowners would steal the property from the poor people. And you all know that great story in the Bible in 1 Kings 21. Remember Naboth had a vineyard next to the palace? And King Ahab, who was a really bad dude, wanted the vineyard. So he goes to Naboth and says, I'll buy it, I'll trade, I want that vineyard. And Naboth says, "Can no can do. It's in my family's heritage. I like it. You can't have it. King Ahab is very sullen, very sad very upset, and he goes back to the palace, and his wife, who's Jezebel, who's much more wicked than him, says, don't you know you govern Israel? What she's incessant saying is, don't you know the power you have? She says, I'll take care of it. And you know the story. She calls in some worthless people. They have a feast. They invite Naboth, and the two false, foolish, the two uh, worthless people say he cursed God and the king. They take him out, stone him, and she goes, Ahab, go get your vineyard. God was not pleased with that, we know. So you can see how the rich, the powerful, even kings of Israel would steal land from property owners. 
I actually have a, my father's younger sister, she's dead now, had some property on the Miramichi River in Canada, and a wealthy man brought the property next door, and he actually took about a third of her property, and she actually, I think, died before the, the, the lawsuits, the courts ever resolved it. So it happens then, it happens today. Maybe some of you know people who've been cheated. Rich people will do whatever it takes to get richer, more powerful, to get lands. But these people who boast in their wealth, they have a false sense of security. They never have enough power. They're never satisfied. But the psalmist is saying the righteous don't need to fear. God is on our side. If you've been a victim of oppression, fraud, theft, and you've never received justice, don't fear. Psalms 96.10 says, God will render justice to the peoples with equity. Uh, Psalms 96.13, three verses later, says, God is coming to judge the earth. Let's move on to point, sub-point number two. What the wealthy cannot purchase. What they cannot purchase? Immortality. Immortality. He says, truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life. In my translation, the word ransom is used three times in the ESV. Ransom literally means to buy. It means to buy. And J. Vernon McGee says on this verse, No matter how rich a man is, he cannot buy salvation. He and I go to the counter for salvation. I have nothing to which buy buy salvation. The rich man has money, but he cannot buy salvation with it. We are both on the same par. The rich man is excluded from redemption if he is deluded into thinking that he can either buy or do something or give something to obtain salvation. Romans 4.5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The rich young ruler in Mark 10 could not buy salvation, right? Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 could not buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul said to him? He said, Paul said, you think you could obtain the gift of God with money? The jailer in Acts 16, however, cried out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur said, to gain every possession possible in the world, and yet to be without Christ is to be bankrupt forever. We need to look at the rich the famous, the powerful, the ungodly, as spiritually bankrupt. They have wealth here. They have their 501Ks. They have their houses in Lake Tahoe and Aspen and Beverly Hills. But in the bank account in heaven, it's a fat zero. Number three, what the wealthy cannot perceive, and that's the cost, the cost of salvation. We have the word ransom again. For the ransom, it's verse 8, by the way, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Verse 8 continues to speak about the ransom price. Not only can you not ransom another or buy salvation, they can't even perceive the cost of that ransom. It's inconceivable, isn't it? No amount of money or anything in all the world could ransom a soul, but it costs the life of the very Son of God. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19, is one of the most couple, the most two beautiful verses in the Bible. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. And it says, knowing that you were ransomed, maybe your translation says redeemed. They're interchangeable, ransom and redeemed. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things 
such as silver or gold. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, you've heard this saying many times, I'm sure. Money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Amusement, but not happiness. Finery, but not beauty. A crucifix, but not a savior. Uh, there's a story, uh, not a story, Alistair Begg. You all, if you know Alistair Begg, wonderful Scottish preacher, you know, just that Scottish accent. So you can look it up on YouTube sometime. Look up Alistair Begg, the man in the middle. I'll rephrase it simply, but I can't compete with Alistair Begg. But he tells the true story of the thief on the cross. And then he tells a hypothetical story of when the thief on the cross got to heaven. So when the thief of the cross got to heaven, hypothetical story, the, 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 the angels are in a, uh, they're, in, they're just going crazy. Like, how is this guy here? Why is this guy here? And they're grilling him about, how did you get here? You know, and, they're, and, they're, and finally the, 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 the angel goes to get his supervisor and the supervisor comes over and he's frustrated too because he doesn't know how the thief got to heaven. And they ask the thief, how did you get here? And the thief says, the man in the middle cross said I could come. And that's true, okay? Because 700 years before the Messiah came, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 55 verse 1 said, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The Messiah then came. And the Messiah said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then the, one of the last verses in all the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. So what the wealthy cannot perceive is the cost. But we who have Jesus Christ in our heart know it's a free gift of God. Let's move on to subpoint number four. What the wealthy cannot prevent, and that's death. Verse 9, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The New Testament version of this verse is Hebrews 9, 27. I trust you've memorized that verse to share Christ. And that says, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, after that comes judgment. Death is certain. You know, someone has said that on the back of the birth certificate when your baby is born is written in invisible ink a death certificate, the exact day that baby will die, and only God knows the day. The richest man on earth could not, by paying all his wealth to God, escape death. You know, sometimes the Old Testament passages like Psalm 49 have a New Testament equivalent commentary, and that's found, and let's turn there, to Luke chapter 12. We've turned to this quite often on Sunday Many times, and you know the, the parable of Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. And Lance said, I think 25 years ago, this is the only place in the Bible, Luke chapter 12, this parable, where God says, you're a fool to somebody. And why are they a fool? Well, we'll read it. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man... Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care 
Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Psalm 49, 6 says, abundance of riches. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared for, for prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. If you go back through that parable, five times he says I and four times he says my. Nine personal pronouns, no thought about God, no thought about using his money to help God's kingdom, no thought about the poor. But verse 21 is the verse that's applicable to us. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we mentioned it's the only place in the Bible where God calls somebody a fool. Well, there's lots of fools today, aren't they? Lots of fools today chasing wealth. There were fools in the psalmist days. They were fools in Jesus' days, and they're fools in our days. Let's move on to sub-point number five. What the wealthy cannot keep. And what can they keep? They can't keep their treasures, right? Verses 10 to 12. He says, For he sees that even the wise, the fool, and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. He talks in verse 11, Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. And verse, that even though they, they call lands or property after their names, and man in his pomp will not remain. He's like beasts that perish. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? Death is universal. It says from the wise to the stupid. They're all going to die, and they're all going to leave their wealth to somebody else. Their homes, their lands behind. Now, the proud will try to, the proud will try to ignore this harsh reality, won't they? They imagine that their wealth will enable them to live forever. I was in... Uh, Sprouts uh, this week, and I should have bought the magazine to show you, but it's talking about there was a, uh, one of those magazines at the checkout line, and it was literally saying how to live forever. But it's an obvious truth that everybody can, li- can see, although they can't see it, right? They fail to see it because they refuse to see it. Although they know they'll die, they behave as they'll actually live forever. And I was thinking about if you go home tonight and turn on the news, there's probably a 50-50 chance that there'll be a car chase somewhere in L.A. tonight. It just seems like there's car chases every day. These people in the cars are fools, like the rich fools, right? There's a helicopter over them. There's probably three or four helicopters over, and there's probably 12 to 20 sheriffs, CHP, or police chasing them. They're not going to get away, right? Now, but they're in the car, and they think they're going to get away because they think it's like Hollywood where they can just escape. So they're like, the, they're like rich fools. They think they're getting it away, and the rich fool thinks, well, I don't care if I'm 84 or 90 or 95. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to get more money. I'm not going to share it. I'm going to store it up. So uh, they actually think they'll get away with it. Verse 12 tells us that to live this way, you're like a beast. You're like an animal. Now, what's the difference between a human and an animal? Humans could reason. Humans can think. Humans can have discernment. But animals don't. But those rich people that that are called fools, 
they're just like beasts. And he's going to say that in verse 20 in addition, and we'll get to that later. Let's look at subpoint number six. What the wealthy cannot escape. What can they not escape? Sheol. It's mentioned three times in verses 14 to 15. Okay? Sheol is the Old Testament equivalent of Hades, that temporary abode where they would go, and today we would say hell would be the equivalent of it. Verse 13 tells us that the rich have a foolish confidence in their wealth. When Jesus said, it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the Jews went crazy. They were astonished because Judaism taught that wealth was a mark of God's blessing. But Jesus said no. And you notice here, it says in uh, verse 13, yet after them people approve of their boasts. They're, They're foolish people following the rich people. There are Poor people, there are middle class people who aspire to be like the rich fools, so they follow them. You know, you don't have to be wealthy to perish because of wealth. There's lots of poor people, but you can be poor or middle class and perish because making money is your goal for getting about spiritual things. So it's not just the rich who can be foolish. Verse 14 is a very interesting verse. It describes rich fools as sheep. Now, in the New Testament, believers are described as sheep, right? Jesus calls us sheep. But here you have this very interesting saying, death shall be their shepherd. Okay? So one commentator suggests that the comparison with sheep here suggests that rich fools are like grazing animals, not knowing at any time they're going to be slaughtered. Death will shepherd the ungodly, while God will redeem the righteous from the power of Sheol. Alexander McLaren wrote several hundred years ago, He wrote an entire sermon on this verse 14. And he he compared the shepherding of death with the good shepherding of Jesus. He suggests that the psalmist, when he's writing Psalm 49, knew of Psalm 23. And so he thought of, well, the psalmist is writing, death is my shepherd. He remembers, the Lord is my shepherd. So if you have Jesus Christ in your heart tonight, the Lord is your shepherd. But if you're a rich fool, death will be your shepherd. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What can the wealthy cannot do? They cannot cause fear to the believer. What the wealthy cannot purchase? Immorality. What the wealthy cannot perceive? The cost of salvation. What the wealthy cannot prevent? Death. What the wealthy cannot keep? Treasures. What the wealthy cannot escape? Shield. But subpoint number seven is about the godly. What can the godly know? What we can know is eternal life. Verse 15 is the diamond in this psalm. It's the, the main theme in the psalm for us. It's like John 3.16 or Romans 5.8 of the Old Testament. What did the psalmist know about eternal life? A lot of commentators would try to say in the psalms they didn't have a, a very good understanding of eternal life. I disagree. Moses knew about eternal life. In Hebrews eleven twenty seven, it says that Moses was looking for the reward. Abraham knew. In Hebrews eleven ten, it said Abraham was looking for the city that has the foundation, whose designer and builder is God. Job knew. In Job nineteen twenty five, he says, "I know that my redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand upon the earth." The psalmist knew about eternal life, and that's why he wrote this verse fifteen. And there's two points there. God will ransom us, and God will reunite us. So when the psalmist is writing this, 
He hasn't been ransomed yet because it's maybe a thousand years before Jesus came. But in verse 7, it says, no man can ransom another. Verse 8 says that the ransom of their light is costly. So for the third time, we see the ransom in the ESV version. But before you see the word ransom, notice the first two words. Perhaps the most beautiful words in the Bible. But God. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. John MacArthur, if you have a John MacArthur study Bible, it says that this is one of the greatest affirmations of the confidence of God in the book of Psalms. Although the faithless person cannot buy his way out of death, the faithful one is redeemed by the only redeemer, God himself. The psalmist here is looking forward to the ransom of the cross, while we look backward to the ransom that was paid at the cross. Titus 2.14, another beautiful verse says that, it says who? Jesus gave himself to redeem us or ransom us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people that is very own possession who are zealous to do good works. So the psalmist was looking forward to the ransom of his soul. He knew that when he died, he was not going to be kept in Sheol by the power there, but that he would be ransomed, that God would buy him out of the power of Sheol. Subpoint number two there, God will reunite us. He says, for he will receive me. This is a very beautiful word here. Not only will God ransom, but God will receive him. Receive him literally means eternal life. The New Living Translation says, he will snatch me from the power of the grave. The NIV says, he will surely take me to himself. The word here, he will receive me, is the same words used in Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The same Hebrew words, God took him, as he will receive me here. In Psalms 73, verse 24, it says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Receive me is the same word we have here in verse 15. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elisha is about to go up in the whirlwind, the prophets are saying, you know today uh, you're, ma- you're going to be taken away with your master. And they say it about four times. That word, taken away, is the same word, he will receive me here. But God redeems the life of those who trust in him rather than those who trust in riches. And I love it here. It says, he will receive me. The psalm is not just about riches. It's not just about wealth. It's not just about uh, rich people perishing in hell. This is basically a salvation psalm also. Have you been ransomed tonight? Are you looking forward for the reunification with Christ? John 5, 24 is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It's a triple promise from God. He says, truly I say to you, Jesus is speaking, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me, promise number one, has eternal life. Promise number two, he does not come into judgment. Promise number three, but has passed from death to life. That means when you have Jesus Christ in your life, through believing and hearing, not by works, he says you have eternal life. He says you will not come into the judgment where the, the sheep goat judgments. You'll come into the Abima seat judgment where we're judged for our works, but you will not be judged for your sins. And number three, he says you pass from death to life. 
Before you receive Jesus Christ, if you perish, you'd spend eternity in hell. But once you receive Jesus Christ, he says you pass from death to life. You have eternal life. That's a triple promise from God. Let's go on to point number three. Words of wisdom about the worthlessness of wealth. Verses 16 to 20. The rich will leave everything. I think we know that, right? Uh, You you know the saying, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, is a very familiar saying. Uh, But the rich are going to leave two things. They're going to leave their riches, and they're going to leave their splendor. Number one is riches. He says at the beginning of verse 16, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich. And then he says in verse 17 at the beginning, For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. Remember verse 5 said, Why should I fear in times of trouble? And here it says, be not afraid. There will always be rich people in this world. There will always be powerful who are getting richer, more powerful, uh, always oppressing the poor and the needy. You know, not so much maybe our country. Maybe yesterday we saw abuse of power in Washington, and it seems like maybe it's getting worse and worse. But try living in a third world country. There's not a judicial system. Today you might be able to hire a lawyer. Today you might be able to have an advocate group help you with your property dispute or something. But in poor countries, they're just abused. Land can be taken from you like here. But it says they're going to carry away nothing. Job 121 said, after Job lost everything, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I hope you can say that if sometime you lose a lot of things. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, as, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for the toil that he may carry away in his hand. The New Testament backs this up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take and we cannot take anything out of the world. I like what Martin Luther said 500 years ago. The Lord commonly gives riches to foolish people to whom he gives nothing else. They're bankrupt in heaven. So they're not going to take their riches, they'll leave everything, but they'll also leave their splendor. It says in the last part of verse 16, when the glory of his house increases. It says in the last part of verse 17, his glory will not go after him. They're ultimately a nobody in hell. They have no fortune in hell. They have no fame in hell. They have no power in hell. They have no friends in hell. They lose all that glory that they had here. Let's move on to subpoint number two. The rich will never see life. Verse 18 talks about their prosperity. Yeah, they can get rich here. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself. Yeah, there's a lot of rich people out there. He counts himself blessed, like the rich fool in Luke 12. So verse 18 is about prosperity now, but verse 19 is about perdition later. Perdition is hell. It says in verse 19, His soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see the light. You know, we looked at the parable in Luke 12 about the rich fool. There's another parable about a rich man Jesus gave. It's also in Luke, Luke 16. Probably my favorite parable. It's about the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted, it says, sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man, and it's the only parable of the 40 parables where we actually name 
the man named Lazarus. His, his name is Lazarus, and he's covered with sores. And I'll just read it for the sake of time. It says, This poor man, Lazarus, desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at Abraham's side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. That's the verse that the rich people need to remember. Child, remember that in your lifetime or this lifetime, you had good things. And maybe you are poor, middle class, not too many rich people here tonight. Maybe you didn't have a lot of good things. Maybe you had bad things growing up. But it says he is comforted here. We're going to be comforted in heaven. Our comfort comes in heaven, not earth. And it says in verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able to. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. There is a hell and there's a heaven. Let's look at the last subpoint. The rich will perish like beasts. You remember verse 12 mentioned man in his pomp will remain. He is like beasts that perish. Verse 20 says man in his pomp yet without understanding, is like beasts that perish. So the rich here are described as pompous, but they don't have any understanding. They won't read the Bible. They won't search out eternity, even though God says eternity is in their heart. While the believer has understanding, the believer read the words of the Bible, they understand the future events. They understand how it's going to end out. The rich without Christ are just like beasts, just like animals, who have no reasoning abilities of the future events. So what does this psalm teach us? I'd like to say maybe four things tonight in finishing. Psalm 49 ought to prepare us to die. It ought to prepare us to die. It's a wise psalm, a wise meditation upon the meaning of life. Look around you and look at the rich, the famous, the powerful. Look at their riches, their arrogance. And remember the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great leveler. This is wisdom literature, Psalm 49, that we need to teach our children and our grandchildren. And I'm afraid there's a lot of Christians that aren't teaching their kids about money. Kids today are growing up demanding everything and parents can't say no and they don't know how to handle money and they can get into serious debt and problems as they grow up. Number two, we need to trust in the Lord. And live wisely in spite of powerful, oppressive people. And maybe, what we saw yesterday in Washington, it's going to get more oppressive. If they hire 87,000 IRS agents, are they going to go after churches and 503 charities and things? Maybe. Uh, so the, but just remember, the destinies of the wise and the foolish are vastly different. You might be wrong in this eternal life, but just make sure you have eternal life. What is not adjusted in this life 
will be adjusted in the next life. Uh, it was Corrie Ten Boom who lost everything when she was sent to a concentration camp in Nazi, when the Nazis arrested her and her family. She said, I have learned that we must hold everything loosely because when I grip it tightly, it hurts when my father pries it from my fingers loose and takes it from me. Number three, this psalm does not prohibit people from becoming wealthy and powerful. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy as we see characters in the Bible such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lot, although he didn't handle his wealth right. Job, you'll see in a few weeks. Boaz, Abigail and Nabal, King David, Solomon, Hezekiah in the New Testament, Zacchaeus, Matthew, Joseph of Arimathea, the Roman centurion, Lydia, Dorcas, Barnabas, and Philemon all were apparently wealthy. But they didn't trust in their wealth. To trust in their wealth is foolish and futile. And listen carefully. Too often, an increase in wealth leads to an increase in sin. Just just study the people who won those lotteries. Most of the time, most of the time, it does not end well. Okay? More money means more problems, more temptations, and quite often, more sin. Uh, James Boyce, one of my favorite pastors, said, Since we are eternal creatures, we ought to focus on how we might prepare for eternity rather than how we might accumulate increasing wealth here and perish with it. James Moffat said, A man's treatment of money is the most decisive test of his character, how he makes it and how he spends it. And Billy Graham said, If a person gets his attitude toward money straightened out, then almost all other areas of life will be straightened out. We need to teach our children, our grandchildren, about tithing. You know, when when your grandchild or your child gets that $50 gift at Christmas from from you or your parents, are they taught to give $5 to church on Sunday? I'm afraid that most Christians don't teach that anymore. But they need to be taught tithing. They need to be taught that some of that money could be going to support missions. It's God's money, all, all of it. It's God's kingdom. And we need to teach our children and our children's children investing in treasures in heaven and not in earth. And number four, lastly, those who cherish power, those who cherish the wealth of this world, they're going to perish like the beasts of the field, rich, wise, famous, and powerful. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I've lived almost half my life outside the United States, and it's true. Whether it's a poor country like India or Myanmar, Thailand's not so poor, but they do have some poor. People, the, the most countries, it's not the religion, Buddha or whatever, it's money people are chasing, and it keeps them out of heaven. But those who live by faith, like you hopefully tonight, will triumph over the grave. Hopefully you're like the proverb in Proverbs 15, verse 16. It says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. You want a great treasure? Trouble's going to come with it. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 77, and that's called Overcoming Depression and Discouragement.